Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days. Then, when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for more new-to-you styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours and spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothing for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off of their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Virginia Ann Rambus was only 19 years old when she left her apartment to walk across the complex to meet up with a friend. She started the walk but never arrived. Her case remains unsolved, but a man of particular interest was living in the same complex at the same time. To those he provided drugs to, he was known as the Candyman. Police in Alaska, Washington, Oregon, and California, however, knew him as Jesse Clarence Pratt. And if he had remained in prison for the crime he committed in 1980, Virginia might still be with us, as would another murder victim. Today, in part one of what was originally two but quickly grew into three, I will be telling you about Jesse Pratt's path of destruction, the many wives, partners, children, and sex workers he left bloodied and abused, the women he may have had a hand in killing, and the young victim that earned him the title of oldest inmate serving life in an Oregon penitentiary, Carrie Love. Today's episode came about courtesy of our True Crime Tuesday segment, which we host weekly on our local CBS affiliates morning show. When looking up unsolved cases to share, I came across Virginia's story on the Charlie Project website. There, I read about her possible connection to Jesse Pratt. And once I looked up his name, the information and his ghastly history came flooding in. It was May 20th, 1985, when 19-year-old Virginia Ann Rambus was leaving her apartment at the 6800 block of South 123rd Street in Seattle to walk across the complex to a friend's unit. The plan was that the two would be riding together to a party. Virginia got ready and left her place around 8 p.m. She never made it to the other unit, 
and she has not been seen since. As we've discussed, the mid-1980s was quite the time for serial killers in the Pacific Northwest. At the time of Virginia's disappearance, there were several other missing or murdered women in the area. Most had been at the hands of the Green River Killer, although Ted Bundy and others were also active. The biggest difference between the victims closest to where Virginia lived was that they had all been connected to sex work, and Virginia was not. When Virginia was last seen, she was 5'2 and weighed 135 pounds. She is black, has dark brown hair, and brown eyes. She would often go by Anne and was last seen wearing jeans, a white pullover sweater, and black cowboy boots. She would now be 57 years old. Virginia could hold her own. In fact, when she was just 18, she was actually charged with simple assault. The five-day suspension was deferred for a year. And you won't believe this. A young black girl went missing, and the only newspaper coverage I could find that had her name on it was the report of this misdemeanor charge. One year and one month after Virginia was last seen, a man who lived in the same complex, Jesse Pratt, was arrested for the murder of a different young woman. Five years before that, he had been in prison for kidnapping. The police have tried to find answers to Virginia's whereabouts via Jesse, but they have yet to be able to connect him to her disappearance. I emailed the King County Sheriff's Office to find out where her case stood and if there was any additional information we could provide in hopes of helping to close the case. I was told that hers is still an active case, so I followed up asking if Jesse was still considered a person of interest, and I've yet to receive a response. Now, if I were a betting woman, I would guess that because of Jesse's current situation, maybe they aren't too concerned with pinning him for Virginia, though it would be really nice to know what happened to her or what her whereabouts are. At the time of Virginia's disappearance, Jesse Pratt was driving an eye-catching gold-speckled Cadillac Eldorado. If you have any information surrounding the disappearance of 19-year-old Virginia Ann Rambis from the Seattle area in May 1985, you are asked to contact the King County Sheriff's Office at 206-296-3311. You can also leave an anonymous tip at Crimestoppers.com or call 1-800-222-8477. There is a $1,000 reward for information that leads to an arrest. To understand why Jesse Pratt became a person of interest, we have to go back to where his story begins and follow it down a path of drugs, sex workers, trafficking, cons, and abuse. Jesse Pratt's mother, Elizabeth Kathleen Kelly, was born near the borders of Utah and Wyoming in the small southeast town of Soda Springs, Idaho. She and her two sisters, along with their parents, moved to Edgemont, South Dakota when she was six. At just 15, her father passed away. At 18, she fell into a marriage that was common for the time. Her 23-year-old beau was being shipped off to fight in World War II. Jesse Pratt Sr. was probably a military brat in his own right, having been born at the Panama Canal. The two crossed paths at some point and were married in Montana in 1943. Just seven months later, they welcomed their son, Jesse Clarence Pratt Jr., or Clarence as his mother would call him. Jesse Pratt's birth certificate says he was born in Tyler, Texas on July 3, 1944, facts he would later argue. Jesse Pratt Sr. dropped out of school when he was 14, completing only the sixth grade. When he was 15 years old, he married a 14-year-old girl. They had three children during their nearly 10-year marriage. They would eventually divorce and remarry. That marriage was still valid when he met and married Elizabeth before being shipped off to fight in Europe. Jesse Sr., having been a mechanic, begged to be sent to the mechanics division. Instead, he was sent to the infantry. 
Early on in the war, Elizabeth received a telegram relaying the worst news possible, that her beloved husband, father to her son Jesse, had been killed in action in Germany. A sergeant eventually came by her home to relay the details of Jesse's fight and death. Elizabeth was heartbroken. Jesse Jr. was still just a baby, a baby who would now never know his father. Sadly, this would be far from the last tragedy Elizabeth would experience. In 1947, Elizabeth married Cecil James Stacy, with whom she had three children, Cecilia in 1947 and Judy in 1950. Their son James was born on May 20, 1949, but would pass away on the 23rd from unlisted causes. Just another devastating loss. By 1950, the blended family moved to Monterey, California. In 1953, Elizabeth and Cecil divorced. Cecilia and Judy went with their dad. Jesse stayed with his mother. He was nine. After the divorce, Elizabeth and Jesse moved up to Alaska, where she worked at the Red Cross on the local Air Force base. In all, she would end up being married a total of five times. Jesse Sr. had passed in the war. She divorced Cecil. She then married a man named Donald, another named Ole, and an unknown man. In no particular order, they would die from injuries sustained in a car accident, cancer, and PTSD-driven suicide after serving in the Army. Though he had lost his father, eventually four other stepfathers, a brother to death, and two sisters to separation, on top of moving thousands of miles from where he had considered home, Jesse, his mother would later report, was a wonderful boy. He never wanted for much. He had food. He had toys. He had bikes. He was tender, compassionate, and sensitive to others. Young Jesse was known for his good mood. Well, for that and for being the kid who would bring home stray animals unannounced. As Jesse became school-aged, some of his mental limitations began to show. His mother asked the school to hold Jesse back until he could catch up to the expected reading levels, but they moved him through the grades without hesitation. It wasn't much of a surprise he dropped out of high school and never completed his education. Even in his teen years, he was still only reading at a third-grade level. This was mostly due to the fact that his reported IQ at the time was 70.5, which today is considered to be in the range of mental retardation and on the cusp of severe delay. The average American IQ is reported to be 100, though it really doesn't seem that high on most days. Having missed her brother for the last decade, Cecilia was able to track Jesse down. They had talked on the phone a few times through the years, but she had hopes for a family reunion, especially since they had enjoyed such a lovely childhood together before they were torn apart. So when she turned 17, she found Jesse's address, went to his place, and stood on the porch, anxiously awaiting his return home. When Jesse arrived, he looked at his now-grown sister and said, As far as I'm concerned, you're dead or you should be dead, and walked in the front door, closing it behind him. Stunned, she left his home. Before she left Alaska, she tried stopping by again, but he wouldn't acknowledge her. It would be 13 years before they would be in contact again. Jesse lived with his mother until he was 19. Whatever mental impairments he may have had didn't keep him from finding work. He was staying busy, working for a house-moving company. In 1966, 22-year-old Jesse met 16-year-old Linda. Before long, they welcomed a son. They were married for two years, during which Jesse would beat, slap, punch, kick, and attack her viciously. There was even a severe beating that occurred when Linda was six months pregnant with their son. In the same window of time the young couple was building their family, Jesse was home from work as he had broken his leg during a move. 
healed, he returned to work only to find new owners had taken over. They didn't get along, so he quit. That was when Jesse discovered the world of truck driving. As we've heard in nearly every case of domestic violence, Linda tried to leave Jesse. She tried eight times. Now, it may be hard for someone to imagine being treated that way, only to be sweet-talked, as she called it, into returning. But you have to remember, this was the 1960s, and Linda had been with him since she was 16. What well-thought-out decisions did you make at that age, especially concerning a boy you liked? Now imagine not being able to get a credit card because you're a woman, you're isolated in Alaska, and you have a baby with this man, and now you're just 18. It's possible Linda was a black woman, leading to her son being mixed race, something that will come into play in the future. On one occasion, Jesse was able to locate Linda after she had fled. So he broke into the home she was staying and struck her on the head with the homemade club he had brought with him. The lack of options left Linda calling Elizabeth, Jesse's mom. She, too, had noticed the change in Jesse's behavior and attitude. He would ask for money. He was aggressive and his language was atrocious. After getting into the truck driving world and, according to Elizabeth, quote, hanging out with colored people, the sweet, caring Jesse was gone. Now he was an angry man who seemed to have it out for women. Elizabeth bought Linda and her grandbaby plane tickets to get out of the state and away from Jesse. After this apparent lack of loyalty, Jesse didn't come by the house as often. He would only go over to his mother's if he was going to ask for money. If he didn't get any, and if there was no one around, Jesse would even get violent toward her. She claimed even his eyes would change when he was in one of these rages. Concerned, Elizabeth reached out to a psychiatrist. She explained how her son, who had been sweet and gentle, was now vicious and violent. That doctor said, well, he's an adult. Not really much you can do. Now an official trucker hauling gravel for the construction of the Alaskan pipeline, Jesse developed a new persona. Besides his temper, he was known for his macho attitude. True or not, he would boast, usually to women, about his financial successes in his career. Men in his company would get to hear the details of his most recent sexual conquests. His charisma was powerful enough to override his boorish behavior and looks. The young man had become an adult. He was six foot two, had glasses, only wore cowboy boots, had eyes that sat in a permanent state of glare, was developing what would become a notable potbelly. His hair was thinning and receding while also long, curly, and bushy. His beard was of the same wily consistency, jutting out as far from his face as his mop did. To say his look was a dark-haired version of Yosemite Sam sticking his finger into a light socket would not be an understatement. Sounds like a real catch. Oh, boy. And the pictures are even more upsetting. Josh saw the book, which on the cover has a small photo of him, and he went, oh, my God, is that him? And yeah. I was like, and that's a good photo. The book can't be in the living room <laughs> face up. It's His pictures are upsetting. In 1975, Jesse met Cheryl, possibly while doing a haul through Oregon. She had four children of her own, which Jesse helped to move, along with Cheryl, up to a mobile home in Anchorage. They were married, and the abuse began. Two to three times a week, Jesse would take his rage out on Cheryl. His go-to was utilizing his cowboy boots to kick her. The two eventually had a daughter. One of Cheryl's daughters, her 11-year-old, who we will call Amy, was just one of many of Jesse's partner's children who would be threatened with rape, among other things. There were reports that Jesse had, in fact, molested Amy at some point, though
though he was never arrested for it. Amy once had her head slammed into the faucet of the bathtub because Jessie felt she was not cleaning the bathroom adequately. She was also a witness to the time her mother had to go to the hospital. Jesse hadn't liked what had been prepared for dinner, so he threw a fork at his wife with such force that it ended up penetrating her shoulder. Jesse drove her to the hospital, where he played it off as an accident. On another occasion, Jesse lined the four children up on a wall. Getting in their face, he said, I am the closest thing to the devil that you will ever see. These children, also not the only young victims of Jesse, would have to endure watching him attack their mother, hitting them, and even destroying their toys. While Cheryl was sitting in what she thought was her husband's mobile home, a woman appeared on the property. Jesse refused to let her inside. That's when it was realized this was not Jesse's home. This was his ex-girlfriend's place, and he had just kind of taken it over when she wasn't there. Instead of leaving, he threatened her life. The Pratt family continued to live in the mobile home. It was less than a year before Cheryl gathered her four children and, with a police escort, made it to the airport and escaped from Jesse. By now, Jesse had started to build a bit of a criminal resume for himself. He was driving drugs around the state. He was participating in the running of a brothel. There would eventually be charges of bouncing checks, forged checks, robbery, burglary, assault, theft of a U.S. government check, theft of a truck and a trailer, and threatening a motorist with a gun while he was on probation and was forbidden to own a gun. His PO had even been part of the extradition crew that aided in getting Linda, Jesse's first wife, out of the state after Elizabeth got them their plane tickets. One of the biggest issues that was keeping Jesse on the street, no matter what laws he was breaking, was that he was a con man. He knew that once he was behind bars, he needed to behave. He would quickly prove himself to be a model prisoner, never getting into fights or trouble, at least not that the staff knew. He was, of course, still selling drugs in the big house to make some money. 17-year-old Nancy would be Jesse's new prey. In 1977, Nancy and Jesse were married in Berrien, Washington, where he was now living. The marriage wasn't legal, however, as he hadn't formally divorced Cheryl. Nancy was another victim in all of the same ways, to his charm, his abuse, and his wants. Adding to his list of demands for his wives, Jesse now wanted Nancy to become a sex worker at a truck stop. She refused to do so and couldn't understand not only how she was expected to do such a thing, but how her husband would want her to be with other men. He thought nothing of it. Having sex with the guys in the lot was akin to any other job. Just get it done and get paid. Gross. Her rejection was met with a huge reaction. Jesse brutally beat her, not for the first time, of course, but this round would leave Nancy with black eyes, a scar on her upper lip, and permanent deformations on her face. Not long after Jesse's proposal-slash-demand, his friend Leroy Lance came to town. Jesse knew Leroy from prison. Their friendship was built on their similarities, like having a lengthy record and what one could say was a stunning lack of morality. So when Leroy came to Seattle to visit Jesse, he had no problem taking part in the abuse towards Nancy. Jesse forced Nancy to have sex with Leroy. She was essentially raped, and he had no problem with it. Leroy was so fine with it, he actually brokered a trafficking deal with Jesse. He paid Jesse $1,000 and drove away with Nancy. She was then forced into prostitution in Sacramento, where she eventually escaped. These are just some of the stories of some of the known victims. There's no telling how many girlfriends or sex workers, of which he was a frequent user, have wound up hurt by this man. 
Besides his wives, it's claimed several of his girlfriends were also conned into or forced or trafficked into sex work. Thirteen years had passed, and suddenly Jesse was the one getting in touch with his sister Cecilia. To launch his own trucking business, he borrowed some money from a girlfriend back in Alaska. He was planning on using that money to buy a truck in Oregon, but then he thought of a better con. Holding on to that money, which he would spend in the future on his dream truck, he went to Cecilia's home. Using that charm of his, he was able to finagle Cecilia and her husband out of their truck, which he claimed he was borrowing. Before long, Cecilia was wanting the truck back. That's when the threats on her life began. With every request for the return of the truck, Jesse would make new, more intense, more vulgar threats. He was going to kill his sister by beating her to death, or maybe he would just hire somebody. He was going to kill Elizabeth, their mother, and Cecilia's children right in front of her. Or he would have fun, as she put it, with her before he would kill her. Or maybe he would assault her children before killing them. She testified to these threats years later, unable to use his exact shocking vocabulary. The threats never came to fruition, thank goodness, but instead of giving his sister back her truck that was given on a loan, Jesse crashed it. In the book I read for this case, Fatal Journey, the author used the name Thelma Adams for the next victim. Her name is listed in the paper, so I will be using her first name, which is Teresa. I'll be talking more about the book and some of the oh boy writing later on. Teresa and Jesse started dating in 1980. Jesse was still in Washington and was still a trucker. Teresa had come to Washington via Missouri, where she had left behind a presumably unhealthy relationship with her husband. She was only 25 years old and was starting her life over, miles away from anything familiar. She met a couple who were kind enough to take her in, almost like a surrogate daughter. The couple had been recently hired by Jesse Pratt to do some driving for his company. Jesse explained to the couple that he was a victim of an unfair court proceeding. What he didn't say was that the legal issues were in regard to his sister and brother-in-law who were trying to recoup their losses after he basically stole and then totaled their truck. Teresa, who was also struggling, empathized with his plight. Being in her mid-twenties, Teresa was happy to move out of the couple's home and into Jesse's place in Kent not long after meeting. It didn't take long for his ugly temper to show itself. She learned his cycle. Something would happen, no matter how minuscule, but he would take it as a personal slight. He would then go off on her, calling her a bitch and a cunt, saying she could go back to the other house if she wanted. Then, ten minutes later, he would be calm, acting as if nothing had happened, and would want to make love. Other instances of Jesse's abuse, he would tell her to call her husband in Missouri to ask for money, but she wouldn't. When she refused, he would grab her by the throat. She was unable to travel or leave because her car was in complete disrepair. Going out with Jesse and some of his friends, she quickly realized that they were all traffickers of both drugs and humans. They would even ask her if she was going to go to work for Jesse like Nancy and the other girls had. When she confronted him, Jesse admitted to being a pimp or trafficker to some ladies up in Alaska, but they weren't street girls. They were private house girls. His being a supporter of sex workers, both as a trafficker and patron, seemed to counter what he was known to say about women who were involved in sex work. He was quoted as saying, They're not fit to walk the face of the earth and should all be in hell. Jesse was becoming adamant that Teresa would be forced into sex work or prostitution. And Emily, I'm not sure if you have a thought on this, but 
I really wasn't sure what verbiage to use because when I think of sex work, I think more of like a legitimate work that someone's choosing to do, not so much trafficked. So I'm not sure if prostitution is appropriate. Well, you could say forced prostitution because prostitution is it's not it's I mean, that's still a correct term. Right. It's just people aren't prostitutes. OK, so, yeah. So she was forced into prostitution. Thank you. Mm hmm. To lure her into this world, Jesse offered to buy Teresa clothing that would be appropriate for the job. He would make sure that she had a home, and he promised that the men would be vetted so she would be safe. She could choose who she did or did not have sex with, and he assured her that she wouldn't be hurt by any of the Johns, a promise that I have no idea how he could have kept. How could he have kept? Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, no, You're you'll not be in safe. the room. He said she could work out of a house, not as one of those streetwalkers he so loathed. These pleadings, demands, and pressure would sometimes last for hours during the day. But she just couldn't agree under any circumstances. She didn't see any of this as a job. She saw those acts as something to be shared between people in love, a point he argued. There was no love here, just a way to get money. She, like so many of his other partners or victims, shared the same confusion as to why her man would want her to be sleeping with other people. Teresa was especially confused when she and Jesse were lying on the divan they were using as a bed when he told her that if she were to sleep with another man or leave him, he would not hesitate to blow her away or cut her heart out. I can only assume this hypocrisy came into play if the sex was Teresa's choice and or didn't involve getting paid. In July 1980, things were getting increasingly sour for the couple and Teresa was at the end of her rope. One evening, while making a sandwich for Jesse's lunch the following day, Teresa made the nearly deadly mistake of using a serrated knife to slice the cheese. When Jesse spotted this, he went into an uncontrollable rage. He threw the cheese at her. He was screaming, slamming doors, throwing chairs. Teresa had had enough, so she called a friend who picked her up just 15 minutes later. She left Jesse a note explaining that he was responsible for the end of their love and that she could no longer live with his dangerous temper. After packing up a few items, she was taken to a motel in Renton for safety. While there, she got word that she received a job offer to work dispatch at the L.A. Barnes Truck Brokerage in Tukwila. The man who would be her new supervisor, Roger Burnett, knew of her dire situation and offered to have her move into his family home. There, she would be safe in the company of Roger, his wife, and their children. They even offered to buy her a plane ticket to get out of town if Jesse became too dangerous. She happily took him up on the offer. It was July 13th when Teresa first called the police. She was making a report that Jesse Pratt was harassing her at the new office. She informed her bosses of this as well, a Mr. Barnes and Roger Burnett. They spoke with police and the court, leading to a court order restraining Jesse from seeing or contacting Teresa at work or otherwise. Police also went to Jesse and warned him to leave her alone. A week later, on the 20th, Jesse called for a cab. Riding in the passenger's seat, he gave the address of the Burnett home where Teresa was staying. As they made the drive, Jesse inquired as to where he could purchase a firearm. The driver didn't know. Arriving at the house, Jesse requested a slow drive-by. As they passed the home, Jesse ducked down, trying to hide his enormous figure behind the dashboard. He even told the driver he was actively spying on the blonde woman in the home. The ride ended with Jesse back at his home, However, the astute driver memorized the address. When he looked it up, he learned of the trucking company and called them the next day. 
He told them all about the man, the spying, and the overall creepy vibe. Teresa called the police as Jesse was in violation of the court order. Police went to talk to him, but he couldn't be located. That's kind of cool that that guy did that. Yeah, for an old school cabbie, he's like, "Mm mm-mm. This is bad news. He must have seen things before. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I feel like taxi drivers are good judges of mm-hmm. what people are going to be like and what the what the fare is going to be yeah. like. Yeah. And they're kind of a perfect connection to the police to be like, hey, I'm not involved in this, but I've got all this information. Here's the guy's name. Here's the address we went to. Yeah, an exact time. Yeah. yeah. Timestamp. Ooh, a taxi tattle. I love it. It's unclear what efforts were made by police to track Jesse down or where he ended up hiding for the next few weeks. But his whereabouts were unknown until August 5th. Henry Whaley, who went by his middle name, David, knew Jesse through their shared criminal history. While David was locked up in Alaska, he got word that Jesse was willing to pay him $3,000 to beat someone up. Eager to get some work, David went to Seattle and met up with Jesse. By then, the job had changed. It wasn't going to be a beating he would be an accomplice in. It would be a kidnapping. At 2 p.m. on the 5th of August, David and Jesse pulled into the parking lot at L.A. Barnes. David, a Hispanic 19-year-old who was at the time about 5'6 and 150 pounds, was wearing jeans and a pullover. Holding a long-barreled gun, David draped his tan leather coat over his arm to conceal the weapon. He walked inside and started talking to Teresa at the front of the office. He twaddled on about something about a southbound load— before looking down at her desk and spotting a notepad with the name Bill written on it. He then introduced himself as Bill. Not knowing the man, Teresa got up to retrieve something from another office. Bill stopped her, saying he needed to talk. When Teresa turned, David revealed the gun. As he smiled, he warned her to not do anything stupid. He asked how many people there were and where they were located. In the office was Roger Burnett, along with Lori and Linda Barnes. Then Jesse came inside. Teresa was terrified. As you'll recall, this was just a couple of weeks after having to go to court to keep him away from her. She didn't speak to him, but he grabbed the gun from David and immediately pointed it at Roger, the boss and Teresa's roommate. Aiming the weapon, Jesse forced Lori, Linda, Teresa, and Roger into a back office. David told Teresa to close the blinds. Roger asked if they were all going to be killed. Jesse said he would be taking Teresa and putting her on a flight home. Forcing everyone to turn around and close their eyes, the two men then duct-taped everyone but Teresa's hands behind their backs and put gags in their mouths, duct-tape covering the gag. They were told to not do anything stupid. Roger's wallet was checked for cash. When he didn't find any, Jesse called him a broke son of a bitch. David was able to find $15 in Roger's desk. Then another dispatcher, Jerry Valentine, returned to the office after changing some tires. David put the gun to his head and Jeffrey was swiftly taken to the same office, taped up in the same manner, had his wallet checked, and both he and Roger had their shoes taken away. Confident their hostages were secure, David and Jesse started to leave, grabbing Teresa's purse and Teresa as they left. As she was being walked out the door, Jesse grabbed Teresa by the back of her neck. Squeezing tightly, he warned her again about not doing anything to try to get away or she would be blown away. While he made that threat, David stood behind her, holding the gun to her back. They told her to smile. Behind the building was Jesse's blue station wagon. 
They continued and would continue to tell her to smile, act normal, and not try anything as it would cost her her life. The three got into the front bench with Jesse at the wheel, Teresa sandwiched in the middle, and David at the passenger side. They wound up on the I-5 South. To Teresa's relief, David then unloaded the gun and placed it in the glove box. Countering that relief, David took the $10 bill out of her purse and told her she wasn't going to need it. As if being kidnapped at gunpoint wasn't terrifying enough, David started to make comments to Teresa about her breasts, her looks, and so on. He then fondled her breasts before rubbing her vagina through the top of her pants. Hoping his so-claimed love for her would protect her, Teresa asked Jesse if her being touched by another man was what he wanted. He responded, do what the man tells you. Eventually, they pulled off the freeway at the Evergreen truck stop on Federal Way. The station wagon came to a stop behind a parked Plymouth. The glove box was opened once again, and David reloaded the gun while giving another warning. Jesse got out and had Teresa follow. Holding her hand, he walked her to the Plymouth. Thankfully, Jeffrey, the last to arrive at the office, was the first to finagle his way out of the restraints. He was able to get to a phone and call police. They all knew of Jesse, so they were quick to go to his home. Neither Jesse or Teresa were there, but police did find information regarding David and an address in California, which they hoped would lead them to Teresa's location. Before leaving the truck stop, Jesse took Teresa into a bathroom stall with him. She used the facilities, followed by Jesse, who never once let go of her hand. Leaving, Jesse and Teresa were in the Plymouth, and David was behind them in the station wagon. Jesse had a CB radio in the car, which he turned on, again warning Teresa to not try to say anything, and giving her the reminder that David still had the gun with him. Away from David's invasive touch, Teresa was now the subject of Jesse's verbal torment. He started to call her a lying cunt, saying she had slept with her estranged husband when she went home for a visit. He then hit her in the face, accusing her of sleeping with her supervisor, Roger. He would slap her two more times while driving. Wanting to fix their problems, Jesse recommended that they, as a couple, sit down and sort their shit out, which is always a reasonable request to the woman you've kidnapped. Jesse told Teresa not to run from him or their problems. He then hit her in the chest with his elbow and said, Talk to me, bitch. She tried to explain she was listening to his grievances. Frustrated, he pulled out a pocket knife he had stashed under his left leg, once again warning her to not try to get help. If they were to be pulled over, she was to say nothing was wrong. This warning was given repeatedly. Getting back to what led to the kidnapping, Jesse was hoping they could get back together. They were headed to Eugene. After getting there, they could talk things out before going home. If she could just understand that everything was going to need to be done his way, they could just start over and get a place together. He reminded her he had been watching and knew where she had been, who she had seen, and what she had done for the past two weeks. It was after 7 p.m. when they arrived at the County Squire Motel outside Eugene. Going into rooms 129 and 130, both men closed the drapes and locked the doors. Using the restroom, Teresa was forced to keep the door open. Jesse then went back to mending his relationship. He started again by telling Teresa not to run away from him. He then accused her of calling him by another man's name, so he hit her three times in the face. He called her a bitch and struck again. The conversation then shifted to how she would become a working girl for him in Reno. She begged not to. Jesse expressed his concern for Teresa, saying she should see a psychiatrist. She agreed. 
Maybe she felt that agreeing with him and being given access to a medical professional would allow her to get help and or escape. Jesse went on about how he loved her and he couldn't live without her. She played along, and she even asked him to hold her, which he did. Jesse started talking about another man who would be coming by the motel, and she was going to need to have sex with him. She pleaded, I don't love him. He told her to do it anyway. The man came into the room, and Jesse greeted him by saying that the gun was loaded and ready if needed. Teresa was then raped by the man. She couldn't take her eyes off the gun, sitting right next to her on the nightstand. She felt either man could grab it and kill her at any second. After the rape, Teresa took a shower. Coming out of the bathroom, Jesse wanted to talk again, so they did. A few hours later, Jesse was the one wanting sex. Teresa complied, still watching the gun sitting within arm's reach. After Jesse raped her, he asked her to stay in the bed with him. Laying awake all night, she knew she wouldn't be able to slip away from Jesse's literal grip. With any slight movement, he would squeeze her neck or arm or anything else he was holding. At 7.30 a.m., Jesse demanded more sexual activities, and she again complied. This led to him wanting sex again. The gun remained on the nightstand. Finally, he fell asleep. Teresa was again in his arms, but was too frightened he would be awoken by any attempts to flee. He finally woke up around 11 and was feeling even more... romantic? Now he was so determined to make things work, he suggested that they get married once they arrived in Reno. He started to pack up, putting the gun in the suitcase. Just before noon, the pair went to get breakfast at a restaurant. From her seat, Teresa had a view of the bathroom where she saw two women going in. Seeing an opportunity, she told Jesse she was feeling nauseated and needed to go to the restroom. He allowed it, but stood outside the door as she went in. All of the stalls were full. Teresa was hopeful she would find someone that could help her. One of the doors opened. A little girl came out. So Teresa waited. Then a woman and her mother both came out of stalls. Reaching out, she touched the mother's hand and passed her a business card from the trucking company. She whispered that she had been kidnapped and she needed the woman to call the business to tell them where they were. Teresa was slightly concerned when the woman responded with a thick accent. What if she didn't know what Teresa had said? But the card was placed in the daughter's purse and any fear of miscommunication was lifted when the woman said that she would call from another location and repeated the name and room number of the motel they were in. As the exchange came to an end, Jesse threw the door open and asked Teresa if everything was all right. Before she could answer, he grabbed her arm and forced her back to the table. It appeared Jesse had not caught her asking for help. Once breakfast was finished, they went back to the motel. Continuing her act, although she probably was feeling pretty sick from all of the stress, Teresa said she needed to lay down and watch some TV. Jesse allowed it, but was annoyed as he would now have to call his people in Reno because they were starting to run late. Hoping for another opportunity to get help, Teresa asked to go to the lobby to see if they had some aspirin or indigestion meds. By some miracle, he permitted her, but he would go with her. Teresa thought that if they didn't find help in the lobby, she might be able to make her escape on foot as they had to walk in the parking lot outside to get to the lobby. Standing at the corner, Teresa took stock of the medicine and the few people who were around. Before she could come up with another plan to get aid, a man came up behind Jesse, grabbed him by the neck, and put a gun to his head. It was the cops. Teresa was shoved into a room while Jesse Pratt was arrested. Teresa then went to the police department where she made her statement, a statement that was featured in the book Fatal Journey, of which I used to compile these events. 
Jesse was taken to the Eugene police station to give a statement of his own. He claimed that he had gone to the office to talk to Teresa, and he had only tied everyone up because their trivial relationship issues weren't something anyone should have gotten hurt over. Yes, he did put Teresa in the car, but he told her she could leave at any time. However, he knew he would have to take her, kidnap her, because it wasn't like she was going to talk with him out of choice. He simply had to show her how much he loved her. David was arrested that same day in Galt, California, just outside Sacramento. Jesse insisted over and over, Teresa was never hurt. He took her to the hotel. They talked things out for about three hours. They discussed getting married at the end of the month. He said, we pretty well had our differences straightened out between us. They were supposed to be on the road that morning, but he was concerned that they would get pulled over and he didn't want an officer or anyone else to be harmed. As for the claims of rape and kidnapping being made by Teresa and his attack on the office, Jesse said they were bullshit. He never intended to harm anyone at the office. They just have hard feelings about what happened. He was happy to offer the keys of his car to Teresa to go home now if she had wanted. He would even give her $100. His main concern, he claimed, was that she was all right. If tying everyone up was for safety reasons, why did he look through the wallets of the men at the office, police asked. Well, he did that deliberately. To Jesse, those men were always going around like some sort of, quote, million-dollar people. They used to be guys you could talk to, but not after they found success in their businesses. So he either hoped to find riches and take the money, or find nothing, as he did, to point out their lies. Now on to why he brought a gun if he didn't want people to get hurt and was only there to talk. Well, he brought his pistol because he knew he would have to take Teresa to be able to talk to her, and he didn't want Roger to pull his gun on him, a gun Jesse knew of because it had been pulled on him in the past. Jesse claims he never forced the people to get down. He laid them on the floor real good, and no one was hit or hurt. Police then asked if he raped Teresa. Nope, he didn't, nor did anyone else. They did have intercourse, but it had been consensual. To him, they spent the time at the motel making love and talking through their problems. After giving the plans of Reno and marriage to Teresa, he double-checked that she was okay with it, asking, you sure this is what you want to do? While also telling her she was allowed to go home at any time. She just didn't want to. No one, from police to lawyers to a jury, bought that story. Jesse was taken to trial in Washington and charged with kidnapping. That was due to the fact that the kidnapping had taken place in Washington, but the rapes had occurred in Oregon. He was found guilty and sentenced to 10 years in the Walla Walla State Penitentiary. The rape charges would become the responsibility of Lane County, home of Eugene and Corvallis and many of Emily's cases. But they never bothered to follow up on it, and charges were never brought. As to why they didn't bring those charges, all I could think is maybe that story would be too difficult to buy. This was the 80s, and rape victims were treated very differently then. Maybe it would have been too hard for the jury to understand how you wouldn't scream for help or run out the door. But these are also, you know, the same people who have the ideas of why can't you leave an abusive relationship? So that's really the only reason I can think that they didn't bring those charges, except for laziness or incompetence. Jesse Clarence Pratt was sent to prison to serve his decade sentence on March 20th, 1981. Since this is part one and because I'm covering it, I'll let you guess how much of that 10-year sentence he served. Mm, maybe like 
three and a half? Yeah, I was going to say three years. Okay. He was released in 1984, serving 39 of 120 months, which was just shy of 41% of his sentence. For tying up multiple people at gunpoint, kidnapping a woman, holding her hostage, raping her yourself, and facilitating a rape by another man. Just a couple of years. When parole was offered to Jesse, the prison psychologist said, whomever releases this man must bear the responsibility for his actions. Oh boy, that's never good. Yeah. I have been unable to find any mention of Henry David Whaley except for the newspaper announcing his arrest. There isn't even a follow-up in the book. So I can only assume, being that Jesse was the ringleader and he only got a couple of years, David maybe took a deal and he gave all the details of Jesse's plan. So he maybe had no time or if he served any, probably very little. 40-year-old Jesse was a free man. He went back to his dream of being a successful trucker and his lifestyle of abusing women, using sex workers, and acting macho. His pot belly was quickly becoming his most notable feature, only edged out by his askew and balding afro. May 20th, 1985 was when Virginia Rambus was last seen, and Jesse had lived in her complex. Less than a year out of prison for kidnapping and only a few years since he had raped Teresa, hence everyone's concern about his proximity to the young woman. Virginia being black only added to the suspicion. Jesse had a history of dating black women and even had a son with one of these partners. He also had a girlfriend in Seattle who was black, and she referred to Jesse's gold Cadillac with fur on the dash as his pimp mobile. Virginia's case remains unsolved, but it's hard to imagine Jesse didn't have something to do with it. Jesse eventually took major steps toward his trucking dreams. Meanwhile, Teresa had moved back to Missouri and changed her name to try to hide from him. To start his trucking business, Jesse came to possess, by unknown means, a bright green 1976 Kenworth truck. It had stainless steel fuel tanks, chrome stacks, and pinstripes. It was considered the Rolls Royce of semi-trucks. A couple of years out, Jesse was running two businesses. One was Double Jack, one was Northern Star Trucking. Don't let the illusion of owning two businesses fool you. Jesse was far from successful. Double Jack Trucking was, in actuality, Jesse's escort service. He would provide sex workers, unclear if by their choice or not, to go to homes and they would provide services. He would also use checks under the Double Jack name to pay for anything he could, including bills for Northern Star. Somehow, though, he was keeping his head above water. He had employees and was running produce, perhaps among other, more illicit items, around the country. On June 16th, Jesse and an employee of his, dispatcher Carrie Love, left Washington on a trip to Los Angeles. 20-year-old Carrie was dealing with relationship issues and was offered to ride with her boss to California for a business trip. It wasn't an ideal situation for many reasons, but she agreed and was looking forward to spending some time with her father, who lived in the Southern California area. On the morning of June 17, 1986, Bruce McDonald and his wife Dorothy were driving on Oregon's Highway 97. They had taken the day off work so they could visit Bruce's mother, Frances, who lived in Klamath Falls. When they passed milepost 220, something on the shoulder caught Bruce's eye. It wasn't the deer he was keeping an eye out for. It was something else. Concerned it may have been a body or, in a positive turn, usable items, he pulled over. What he found was a sleeping bag. It was in pretty good condition, so he assumed it had flown off of someone's car, so he picked it up. There were other items in the bag, but they didn't seem too exciting at the time. 
He went to his truck bed, opened the wooden chest he kept there to hold such items, and threw the bag inside. The couple made it to his mother's home, had a nice visit, and packed up to go home. Catching a glimpse inside the box as they were leaving, his mother inquired about the sleeping bag. He brushed it off, saying he had found it off the side of the road. That was when he opened it a little bit further and saw that the sleeping bag and the other items had blood on them. At 6.15 p.m., Bruce arrived at the Klamath Falls Police Station, bloodied items in hand. They were taken to the back and inventoried. Item number one, a green sleeping bag with red and black checkered interior. Bag appeared worn. Number two, a gray purse with zipper top. Purse contained a Washington driver's license issued to carry Lynette Love. Date of birth, 3366. Military ID issued to carry Love. An AT&T card that was issued to carry Love. A pink nylon wallet with black stripes. It was empty. A pink nylon checkbook. It too was empty. A blue checkbook with checks to carry Love with her address. A blue savings deposit book two quarters, five pennies, yellow paper with phone numbers and addresses on them, a prescription bottle with pink pills, and miscellaneous papers and cards, usual purse stuff. Item number three was a white pillowcase with light blue and dark blue stripes. It was dirty and had blood stains. Inside the pillowcase were green paper towels wrapped up in gray tape, yellow paper towels, white paper towels, two eye bolts, one piece of wire, one bolt, one hex wrench, a cigarette lighter to a vehicle, one pair of white pro-wing tennis shoes, and one carbon gas receipt. Everything was put into the evidence locker. Once Detective Kenneth Cooper learned of the items, he felt that there must be a woman in the area that was injured, if not murdered. Recalling a rest area near the location where the items were found, Cooper requested a search. The rest stop wasn't one you would typically picture. There were no toilets or facilities of any kind. It was more of a parking spot for truckers to rest or do other trucker things. There were no lights, and unless you knew of the place, you would pass it without even knowing. Arriving in the late afternoon, the team took stock of the scene. There were trucks parked at a clay bank, which had been cut into to make room for the graded road. Detective Cooper climbed up that bank to get a better view. Between the bank and the road to go through the area was a large pile of gravel. Trusting his gut, Cooper wanted to start the search there. As soon as they began brushing the small rocks away, a hand appeared. Moving more dust and gravel, part of a thigh, half of a breast, a rib cage, and two sets of toes could be seen. Knowing that this was most definitely a murder scene and almost positively that of Carrie Loves, the team proceeded with caution. Calling one of the numbers found in the purse, detectives were connected to Northern Star Trucking. That was when they learned about Carrie and that the last person she had been seen with was Jesse Pratt. Next week, I will be telling you the story of Carrie Love, who she was, what led to her being in the truck with Jesse, and how forensics proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesse Pratt had been the one who caused her death. But will justice be served? Probably not. Is it ever? How did you find out about this case, Leash? Because of the True Crime Tuesday, when I found the Virginia Rambis case, who I've never heard of, like a 19-year-old teenager disappeared in her own apartment complex parking lot. And it even said on the Charlie Project listing, it said Jesse Pratt was a person. I don't know if he was officially a person of interest, but looked at. And so I was like, well, who's that? Why are they kind of saying that? Like, oh, this guy. And as soon as I started looking, that's how I found the book and all that. And there's a, a new detectives episode and a forensic files episode about Carrie's case. I got to look at this picture. Oh, 
while we're still recording. Oh, right? Okay. Please. Oh. He's very greased out. Ooh, and with the glasses. Which one are you looking worst. at? The old one from the 70s? Oh, yeah. The... Yeah. First started with the old one. Now I'm got the one with the glasses from yeah, the Yeah, the one with the glasses 70s. is really unsettling. Awaiting his return home with anxious. Awaiting his return home. Oh my gosh. <laughs> too many vowels. Too many vowels. Eliz- <laughs> I was making sure it wasn't brought. <laughs> Broughton. Broughton? It's already been Broughton. He's one of those you can judge a cover by the book. Did you fall asleep? No, I'm. Oh. Oh, do you not have an answer? No, I'm sorry. Oh, I think okay. I did <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm like, wait, did I not hear the question? I don't think so. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, I'm like, well, I can't use that because I said her name and then there's nothing. Can we just <laughs> go quiet? Can you just there? repeat the... Yeah. <laughs> I, was I just... am so sorry. I'm so sorry. Can you not have your foot there? You, oh, Your very bright white shoes are actually blinding me. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but good to know if you ever get lost in the woods because <laughs> you could catch a helicopter with that. Oh, there. I've got a little blockage. Stretch out. Stretch oh, those are bright. Yeah. <laughs> you said a funny term a couple sentences back that sounded kind of like pooping. Oh. What did you say? You said he twaddled. Mm-mm, before. I think maybe before. Uh, southbound load. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and somebody can pretend they're me. Absolutely. Hello, I'm Emily. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>